0: The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. And I'm, I'm certainly not a medical professional, don't claim to be, and none of this is medical advice. Listen to those who know what they're talking about um, and, and follow what they say. But here's, here's four thoughts that, that I had um, about what's, what's happening. The first is that concern is okay, but hopelessness is not. I don't want us to think, and I don't want you to think, that being a believer and trusting in the sovereignty of God means that we should not be concerned over things like this. And if you, like me, are concerned over what's what's happening, that that is okay, and that's not sin, and you shouldn't feel guilty about that. Um, I, I got multiple people in my family who have, you know, immunodeficiencies. You all probably do too. It's not um, abnormal for that to be the case, and so it is certainly okay, and it is certainly fine to have concern. You can read the scriptures especially the Old Testaments, the Psalms, and the Proverbs, and and you can read of of the people of God having concern over the the state of the world and and what's happening, and that is totally okay. And so don't think and don't feel that if you are concerned that that's wrong or feel guilty about that. It's certainly not. Um, Concern is okay, but hopelessness is not okay. And that really is what differentiates us from the world, is that, yes, we can be concerned. But our concern does not manifest itself in hopelessness. Our concern does not manifest itself in panic. Our concern is firmly rooted and grounded in God our Father, in Christ Jesus, and in the Holy Spirit. And and we can rest secure knowing that God is sovereign. I, I was just thinking this morning that what is it that I need? What is it that my family needs? What is it that we I need and Alicia need, need to, to provide to our kids? What is it that you need from, from your leaders? What is it that you need for your family? What is it that we need for this, this world? And... Um, my mind just went to Galatians 5 and the fruits of the Spirit. Like, what is it that we need? We need the, the, the fruits of the Spirit manifested. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And the good news is, is that none of what's happening doesn't do away with the work of the Spirit. And the work of the Spirit is these things. That's the work of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit. And so concern is okay, hopelessness is not. And our, our, our hope in God should be manifested to the world as the spirit of God works in us to produce fruits of the spirit that should happen every single day not just in a crisis but what a crisis does is magnifies the world's way of doing things and the kingdom of God's way of doing things and so if you're concerned, certainly be concerned, but don't be hopeless. The second thing is that preventative measures are not a lack of faith, but, a, but a, the presence of wisdom. And I don't think this has very much probably with you because we have, I think, a, a pretty sound and astute and smart church. But you may have conversations with people who are believers who, who will... Say, I'm not doing nothing. I ain't worried about nothing. I'll just claim the name of Jesus. And there's nothing in the world to be concerned about. I'm going to go on just like nothing's happening. And, and you know, there may be churches who are, who are large and who shouldn't be gathering today, who would gather today because of that. You taking preventative measures, such as social distancing or whatever they may be, they are not an example of, the lack, of a lack of faith. And don't let anybody tell you that they are. What they are is the presence of wisdom. And so we wanna use, we wanna use wisdom. That was why in, our, in the letter that Terry and Jacob and I sent out this week, I, I wanted to stress that those who aren't here today for whatever reason, they're not less of a Christian than you are. And you're not more of a Christian because you had the faith to come. We don't know their situations. We don't know what's happening. And we, we don't want to have judgment on those things. And understand that, that preventative measures are not a, a lack of faith, but they're a presence of wisdom. Thirdly is church, just not to neglect prayer. Not to neglect prayer, but to take special opportunities to pray. Pray with your families. Pray with your kids. That's one thing we did this weekend was just get our kids and say, I want to hear from you. You, Y'all pay attention. You listen. I want to know, are there fears? Are there concerns? How's your heart? Speak to those things. Pray together with them. They're hearing. They're listening. We don't want them to be filled with anxiety. Um, But at the same time, we want them to use wisdom that they get from their mom and dad. And so don't, don't neglect prayer, especially within your families. And then lastly, let's not neglect each other. Let's not neglect each other. Let's be calling each other. Let's be checking on each other. We have no idea what the next couple weeks will look like. And that's a lot of the, the fear and the concern. Um, we have no idea. But it, it is comforting to me to know that if anything be it a virus or a disease or economic disaster, whatever it may be, it's comforting to me that I to know that I have a faith family that will absolutely do everything in their, their power to, to serve and to love and to minister to my family. And I want you to know that that's true for you too. That's true for you too. There's one thing Alicia and I were talking about as we, you know, you got to have food in case you got to be quarantined. You don't. I don't understand the toilet paper thing. I can live without that. Um, but you got to have food, and and just this, you know, inner struggle of are we giving in to the panic, just like the world, by getting these things and hoarding these things. Um, You know, and is that evidence of a a lack of faith and those kinds of things? To which my response is, I'm gonna go buy some food. But the church's attitude ought to be, this isn't just for me. I'm not just hoarding this for me. I'm not just hoarding this for my family. Because if one of you got sick and you couldn't leave and you needed food, it's coming out of my refrigerator into your house. Because that's what the church is, is called to be. And so um, let's not neglect each other, check on one another, um, pray with one another. Your deacons should be calling you regularly, praying uh, with you, checking on you. Um, if you need anything in the world, you let them know, you let Jacob, Terry, or I know, and we'll do everything we can do um, to, to meet your needs. And so um, in that respect, our peace will be greater than the world's. And they say, how are you so peaceful? He said, well, I have, I have two things that the world doesn't have. I have faith in God and I have a faith family that loves me and will care for me. All right. Mark chapter one. This morning we'll be looking at Verses 16 through 20 at Jesus' calling to his first disciples. What we saw last week is that Jesus has come to gather people into his kingdom. That's that was his message. Grateful for Jacob's preaching last week in Mark 1 and verse 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. Proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus has come to bring the kingdom of God um, to this earth. That's his message, one of repentance and belief in the gospel and today we see the beginnings of Jesus' calling people into his kingdom for his kingdom. And Jesus does this as he finds four men and calls them unto himself, verses 16 through 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother, he's the brother of, of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called to them. And they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants. And followed him. Jesus is now back in his home area of Galilee along the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is a, is a large uh, freshwater lake that is uh, 12 to 13 miles long, nearly seven miles wide at its, its widest part. In the Old Testament, this uh, sea of Galilee was known as the Sea of uh, Kinnereth or Chinnereth, which means in the Hebrew harp because it's, it's harp-shaped. Sh- harp it's also known in the New Testament as the Sea of Tiberias um, because of the, the port city of Tiberias that is on its shore. The area of Galilee... And the Sea of Galilee, as you can imagine, had a major economy that centered around uh, fishing. It was the big business for the area. It was the main economic driver for for the area. Historical records show that fish from the Sea of Galilee fed multiple nations. As fishermen worked to gather the fish, and then transport them really around the world. And it was here that Jesus calls his first disciples a man named Simon, who is Peter, and his brother, Andrew, and another set of brothers, James and John. Now, it is difficult for us to trace exactly the chronological timeline of Jesus, but most scholars agree that there has been nearly a year that has passed since his baptism and temptation up until this point. We know some of what has taken place in that year is found in the the gospel of, of John and John records an important meeting that takes place in John chapter 1, starting in verse 35, that has to do with these brothers. John writes, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. That's John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So we have two disciples of Jesus, or two disciples of John the Baptist, who hear John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God, and they follow with him, they stay with him, they hear from him. And the Apostle John tells us that one of these is Andrew, who Simon's Peter's brother, And he doesn't tell us who the other disciple is, but most scholars are in agreement that the other disciple was John, that he was the one that was there with Andrew. And so in verse 41, Andrew first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be be called Cephas, which means Peter. So here's what we can know. We can know that prior to this point in Mark chapter one, verse 16, prior to them um, hearing the call of Jesus to come and follow me, that these four had had um, experience with Jesus, they had seen him, they had heard him, they dwelt with him, um, they had some level of a mental understanding of his message and who he is, right because what what does Andrew say to Simon Peter, "We have found the Messiah." So there seems to be at this point before Mark 1, some level of a mental understanding, a mental assent to who Jesus is. They've been around him, they've heard his message, they've heard John, who their disciples of, testify to who he is, and there's a level of mental understanding. But I would believe that that probably has not translated itself from From simply a mental understanding into a heart transforming understanding. Now, why is it that I would say that? Because they have, after spending time with Jesus, done what? And went right back to fishing. And they're back in their boats. They're back in their jobs. Doing their vocation. They're back to their regular lives. Regular lives consisted of a fishing business. And by all accounts, this probably was, for, for all of these, a very lucrative livelihood. I mean, you see that John and James, working with their father, have employees. They have employees hired servants. It also seems that Andrew and Peter's business continued on after they left and followed Jesus, meaning that they probably too had employees. And so this was for them a a lucrative business with multiple employees working to provide not only for their families, but for the families of others. And here they are doing their job one day when Jesus finds them because that's exactly what Jesus does. He finds who he wants. And he has in his sovereignty come to the shores of the sea and called these men into his service This is the first time that we see Jesus calling anyone to come and follow Him. And there are some things that we can learn about His calling from this text, and we're going to do our best to work through six of them. And here's the first. Jesus' call is a call of the ordinary. It's a call of the ordinary. Jesus has come, we know, to establish his kingdom, the kingdom of God here on the earth. And who is it that he chooses first? Regular, ordinary, everyday fisherman. Here is Jesus, the, the son of God, the one that has come to establish the, the kingdom of God. And he does not go to the religious leaders of his day. These men, they're not Pharisees. They're not Sadducees. These are not the religious leaders. That is not to whom Jesus goes. Jesus did not call these men out of the palace. Jesus did not call these men because they were rich and famous. Jesus called these men because they were common, everyday, hard-working businessmen providing for a life for their families. I'm sure that these men had calloused hands and sunburnt skin. They were nothing special until God got a hold of them. And this is exactly what God does. God uses the ordinary 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of, normal, of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is what God does. He calls, he chooses the ordinary, everyday, nothing special kind of people for his glory. So that when he works mighty things in and through them, it is clear that it's God that is the one that's doing it and not them. So that God gets the glory. Church, this gives me great joy. You know why? Because I'm ordinary. I'm ordinary. I didn't come from a famous family. I didn't come from a rich family. I'm not the most skilled person in the world. When I was a child, I was terrified to speak in public. If I had to get up in front of somebody and say something, I was Terrified. I'm not exactly sure when that changed, to be honest with you. Probably about the age of 16 when I felt a call to ministry. I'm not who anyone would have chosen. And maybe you feel that way. Maybe you feel you're just ordinary, not a thing special. Maybe we can buy into the lie, oh, if we were more like this person, maybe God could use me. God is looking For the ordinary. And when he gets a hold of you, guess what happens? Something extraordinary, because God is extraordinary. And these ordinary men change the world because it was the power of God in them. The world may pass over you, but God can call you. It's a call of the ordinary, Secondly, is it's a sovereign call. Let's look closely at the text and see who it is, the one that's doing the action here. Again, at verse 16, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, he saw Simon and Andrew. The brother of Simon casting a sea casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen and Jesus said to them follow me and I will make you become fishers of men and immediately they left their nets and they followed him and going on a little further he Jesus saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother who were in their boats mending the nets And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. What do we see happening in this first ever call of Jesus? We see Jesus being the one who is seeking and Jesus being the one who is calling. He saw them. He called to them. They didn't see him. They didn't call to him. He called them. The call of Jesus is always a sovereign call that always originates with God. It never originates in us. This didn't originate in them. This didn't originate in Andrew. This didn't originate in Peter. It didn't originate in John. It didn't originate In James, it originated, it came from, it was birthed out of Jesus who saw them and called to them. This is what Jesus does. John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus chooses us. Jesus chose them and Jesus chooses us. In John 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. And so the Jews grumbled about him because he said I'm the bread that came down from heaven which is hilarious because he said a whole lot of things a lot stronger than that. And they said to him, "Is not... This Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I've come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them and said, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. What do we see consistently throughout the scriptures? That the call of God on our life is a sovereign call that originates in in the heart, in the purposes of God. He is the one that seeks us. He is the one that chooses us. If we were left to our own devices, we would never seek him. Because we couldn't. Because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. The scriptures say no one seeks God. Not one. All have turned away. All have gone astray. A dead man can do nothing. A dead man can seek nothing. We are hostile to God, unable to choose him. Yet God in his grace and his mercy comes and chooses us. That's what you see happening in this. It's a sovereign call that originates in Jesus. And he calls us and we respond. We respond, it's a call of the ordinary, it's a sovereign call. Thirdly, it's a call to Jesus. What is it that Jesus calls them to? Jesus calls them to follow me. Did you know that this is the most repeated phrase from Jesus in all of the scriptures? Follow me. No other phrase does he repeat more time than this phrase, follow me. 13 times in the New Testament, Jesus says, follow me. Me. And church, it is vital that we understand that this is a call to follow him personally, personally. Jesus was not calling these men into a religious system. Now, I am not, when I say that, I am not saying that there is anything inherently wrong with a religious system. Because Christianity is a religious system, And it came from God. So there's not anything inherently wrong with the religious system. But the call of God is not just to a religious system. It's more than that. The call of God is not just to a group. It's not just to um, uh, a creed. The call of God is More than that, the call of God to follow him is a call to a personal relationship with him. That's what God calls us to. A personal relationship with him. Above all else, he calls us to himself. Come and follow me. Church, you cannot follow him Until you've come to know him as your personal Lord and Savior. Coming to church is not following him. Being in a community group is not following him. Following him is knowing him personally, being in a relationship with him. This was a call. For these men to leave everything and to follow him, to know him personally, to dwell with him, and it was a call that lasted their whole lives. Right? From this point forward until the end, these men were known as followers of Jesus. That's who they were. Everything changed. And it changed because of the personal relationship that they had with Jesus. It's a call of the ordinary, it's a sovereign call, it's a call to Jesus personally. And then, fourthly, it's a call of transformation. Look at verse 17. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Here's what that means, church. It means that Jesus will give us what we need for his calling. You come to me. You follow me. And I will, by my power, make you become what you need to be. Right? They're not coming to Jesus because they already are these things. They're fishermen, but they're not fishers of men. Jesus isn't calling them because they have a a certain set of skills. Jesus is calling them because he will, in his power, transform them into what he needs them to be. That's what Jesus does. He is the one that makes you what you must become. He doesn't call us because of what we are. They were fishermen, but his calling was a different task. And one that would take his transforming work to complete. One that would depend on the Spirit's empowering of them. When I read these words of Jesus, follow me and I will make you become Fissures of men. When I read those words, I can't be helped but to be comforted and strengthened by the sufficiency of His grace. Because we know, we know the story of these guys, right? We know the failures. We know the arguments. We know the denials. Yet Jesus says, "I will make you become His grace." is fully sufficient for our weaknesses and our failures. And He will, by His goodness and His grace, the power of His Spirit, because He has called you, He will transform you into what you must become. I am encouraged by the sufficiency of His grace. And I'm also encouraged by the power of sanctification. Because for these men, from this point forward, nothing would be the same. Nothing would be the same. Not just on the outside of their lives, but on the inside, nothing would be the same. And what we witness from this point forward throughout the rest of the scriptures is the powerful, transforming work of the Spirit in sanctification. And I read that and I think, Thank you, God, that you work to change sinners' hearts and make me become. Because there's nothing good that dwells in me. There's nothing in me that's able to complete the calling that he's placed on me. I'm fully dependent on his spirit. And the scriptures are clear. When he calls, he sanctifies. He sanctifies. It's a call of transformation. Fifthly, it's a call... To a mission, it's a call to a mission. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. When Jesus calls you, when he calls you to salvation, when he calls you church, he calls you to fish. Now what does that mean? What that is, is evangelism. That's what Jesus is, is, is saying to these men. Behold, I'm here to bring about the kingdom of God, repent, and believe the gospel. Now, Andrew and Simon, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. James and John, follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. I've chosen you, you four to begin with. I've chosen you to come with me to bring the kingdom of God to this world as we call men to repentance and faith in the gospel. That's the fishing. It's evangelism. God calls us to a mission. His calling is one to the world, to reach the world with the gospel. It is the great commission. That's what Jesus has called us to. To go into all nations, preaching the same thing he preached. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And to trust in the Spirit's power to draw those whom he've chosen unto himself. And to trust in the Spirit's power to take those that he's called. And to transform them. And to send them back out in the nations. So that God can do it again. That's what he's called us to. God calls us to evangelism. When he calls you to salvation, he calls you to evangelism. So this morning I was looking at a map. That shows where this virus is spread around the globe by the big red circles. Y'all have seen it. And I was struck by something. I was struck by the interconnectedness of our globe. You think about this for a second. What happened in one person, in one city, in one market, evidently, in Wuhan, China, has in a matter of months spread around the world. Almost every country has it present. And I just thought, that is just amazing to me. Who would ever have, because that seems so far off to us, right? And if you've ever been to China, you would agree, that is far off from us. But yet we're so interconnected that this virus has been able to 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 trace the globe. And I just got to thinking. That's what the gospel should do. This is how the gospel should look. This is what the gospel has done, right? It started. Where did it start? At The Sea of Galilee. And Jesus saying, hey, I'm going to choose you and I'm going to choose you and I'm going to choose you and I'm going to choose you. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And then from there, it begins to trace its way around the globe. And it's not done. Church, if a virus can do it, the gospel can do it. If the virus can do it, the gospel can do it. Right? It spreads by interaction. Well, that's the same way the gospel should be spreading. By interaction. I mean, how would it be? What would it look like if everyone we came in contact with in some way got contaminated with the gospel? Because it's just the natural state of oozing out of us. This is what God calls us to. He calls us to be fishers of men. He calls us to a mission. He calls us to evangelism. Church, listen. If you are not fishing, you are not following. Follow me, Jesus said. And if you're following him, he's about a a purpose, He's on a mission. Still today, he's on a mission. And if you're following him, then you're a part of that mission to take the gospel to the nations. And then lastly, it's a call that demands a response. What did they do? Well, let's look. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, you saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea. For they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And verse 18. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats, mending their nets... And he immediately called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. What did they do? The response to the call of Jesus was that they immediately, without hesitation, without negotiation, they immediately obeyed. Right? They understood in that moment this was a sovereign call. This was a sovereign call. As I was studying, reading, there's, there's a lot of that people put into the fact that they had had these experiences with Jesus prior to this. In this, this year of ministry that John records. And that that must have been the reason why they just immediately dropped what they were doing and followed him. And I was either talking or texting with Jacob this week, like, you know, what do you make of this year's worth of ministry? And it certainly was there. And and Jacob's point, which is right, is, but we cannot just simply reduce this down to the fact that because they had this previous experience with them, that's the reason why they left everything and went. Because the reason why they left everything and went in that moment is because when the master calls, you obey. And God today is still doing this, and He is still calling people unto Himself, whether they have had experience with Him in the church or not. Today, there are people who are radically saved when they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it doesn't take prior experience, it takes hearing the effectual, working call of the Master and obeying. And that's what they did. Listen, church, delayed obedience is disobedience. Immediately they dropped their nets. Immediately they left their father and they followed him. All they needed in that moment was to believe that he was the kind of man worth leaving everything behind for. That's all they needed. Do you see? They didn't need to know where they were going, they didn't need to know what they were doing. They didn't need to know what lied ahead. They didn't ask. I I imagine, I wonder, had they asked, hey, Jesus, we're going to follow you, man, but but what's that going to look like? Where are we going? And if Jesus would have said, well, I'll let you know, so you're going to follow me for a little while, and then I'm going to die. And then you're going to keep going, and then you're going to die. Because that's what happens. They might have said, nah, that's all right. They didn't know what lied ahead. They didn't know what was coming. All they knew is that Jesus is the kind of person, he's the kind of man worth leaving everything behind. And when the master called, they followed. They were obedient. Church, here's the question for us. Is he that for you? Is he the kind of man worth leaving everything behind for? Are you willing to go wherever he calls. Are you fishing? Are you using your life in the fulfillment and the work of his mission? Are you fishers of men? Are you working to bring about the kingdom of God on this earth, calling people to repent and believe the gospel? Because that's what Jesus is doing. If that's not what we're doing, then we're not following him. When he calls church, we go. We go. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.